Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend, Chavruta Aaron Gordon. Our daf today, Masachet Yivamot, daf Membet, page 42. So I want to discuss two interesting things that we find on this daf, one of which I've talked about before, but said we would speak about a little bit more again. Um, and uh, both of these are interesting to me, I would say, uh, sort of from a uh, medical perspective, um, because they, you know, talk about things that, whether or not they're actually true today or not actually true. Um, and so the Gemara is in the middle of a discussion that in order to make sure we don't have any questions about a baby's paternity, that you need to have a three-month wait before uh, a woman were to get remarried. And so the Gemara says the following, right? So it's understandable to make her wait two months and then marry, right, is not possible. To Hainus Feka, because that's exactly the doubt that we're talking about. That basically, if this child goes to full term to nine months, Ibar Tisha Lakama, Ibar, Ibar Shiva Levatre, right? We don't know, right? If the woman's been pregnant for seven months, we don't know if it was a nine month baby and was from conceived from her previous relationship or if it was a seven month ba- baby. Ella Timatin Chodeshachavatina say. So maybe just have her wait for a single month and then marry. And then if she gives birth after seven months, then we know it's a seven-month baby, right? And must have been fathered by, you know, the, the second husband. And if she gives birth after eight months, then we know it must have been a nine-month baby that was actually conceived and fathered by the first husband. So why does it have to be three months? Really one month, should have been enough. And so the Gemara explains that one month really isn't enough. Because if she gives birth after eight months, right, it can be said that this this baby is maybe the offspring of the uh, of the second husband, right? Maybe she delayed a month after uh, getting married and only then, uh, and then only then became uh, pregnant. Right. So in other words, it may be, you know, she didn't conceive right away um, and just became, you know, pregnant later on. Maybe this is actually, uh, you know, uh, a, a seven month baby. And, uh, you know, this wouldn't. So this single month doesn't actually um, it doesn't actually help at all. And then the Gemara goes on to say, So let her just wait two and a half months. And then marry because if she gives birth after seven months, then we know it's a seven month baby, right? That was fathered by the second husband. And if she gives birth after six and a half months, then we know it was a nine month baby fathered by the first husband. Because it was the ch- because if it were the child of the second. Right, it, it wouldn't be able to survive. A six and a half month old baby is not really going to survive. Barshita um, uflaga right? Because a six and a half month baby cannot actually live. So again, the Gemara wants to understand why is it that she would actually have to wait uh, a full six months? And so the Gemara goes on to say, uflaga yalda, because if she gives birth after six and a half months, right? It could be said that this is still the child of the second husband, to Amar Marzutra, because Marzutra said, Afil Laman Amar Yoledet Latisha, 
Because even according to someone who says that a woman who gives birth at nine months did not does not give birth in abbreviated months, in short months, meaning she must carry the child to be full uh, full term, right? But somebody who gives birth at not seven months sometimes actually can have a shorter pregnancy. So now we're even seeing it's not just the nine-month and seven-month babies, but the seven-month babies could even have been a little less than seven months. Shanat Mar, right? And where do we know this from? Um, and so here they quote a pasuk from Shmuel Al of chapter one, uh, verse 20. And this deals with Hannah when she was pregnant after she prayed uh, to Hashem that, you know, she should have a child. And it came to pass after seasons and days, right, that Hannah had been pregnant, she gives birth to Shmuel. Miut tukufot time. The minimum number of seasons applied by tukufot has to be two. Miut yamim shnaim. And the minimum number of days implied is two. So each season lasts three months, right? So we learn basically that that was six months and two days, right? Because tukufat yamim would basically be six months and two days. So what we learn from this is Hana must have been a seven-month, right, uh, pregnant person, a person who's only pregnant for seven months, but she was actually pregnant for six months and two days, and that was actually considered to be full term. So six and one-half months uh, into the second marriage could actually be a seven-month baby, and therefore you wouldn't actually know if it was a child conceived from the first husband or from the second husband. Then the Gemara goes on to say, So let her wait a short time, meaning one or two weeks, and then marry. And then when three months pass after the end of the first marriage, we could examine her to see if she's pregnant. And then if she's pregnant and she seems to be three months pregnant, then we'll know it was actually from uh, it was from the first husband. But if she's no signs of pregnancy, then it wouldn't be the, the offspring uh, of the first husband. Why do we still have to wait three months? So then the Gemara says, Amar of Safra, Aim Botskina Tanisua. We don't examine married women for signs of pregnancy, because it would be repulsive to their husbands. Now, I think this is sort of interesting. Obviously, this must have been some type of intimate gynecological exam. And the idea is like, this isn't such a nice thing to do. I, I, I would personally think it's not nice to the women, uh, not necessarily so much even for their husbands. So the Gemara says, Let's check her by her walk. Um, because, you know, this would sort of be a non-as-invasive, right? And so what this basically was, was that you would have her walk across loose earth and a woman who has sort of the extra weight of of the fetus will make a deeper footprint. This is basically what Rashi explains. Now, whether or not this was a real examination and this actually worked, I don't know, but this is what Rashi explains exactly what this is. Amr uh, Rami Barhama, so Rami Barhama says, Isha uh, right? A woman would actually cover her, would cover this up. In other words, for a woman who needed to wait this in-between period and wants to make sure that this child is definitely the child, you know, of the second husband and not the first husband, or in other words, wants to really establish what the paternity is, uh, you know, she may, you know, so that her son from the first marriage will inherit the possession of her second husband. In other words, she has an incentive to lie because if it's a child from the first marriage, then that child doesn't get, uh, wouldn't inherit from the second husband. So it's to her advantage to try to say that this is a child conceived of her new relation of her second relationship. And therefore we can't rely on this. So the Gemara basically shows throughout all of this 
you know, that based on this premise of seven-month babies and eight-month babies, we still have to wait this full three months. So I just want to discuss a little bit more about the seven-month and, and, and nine-month baby. There's an excellent article on a website called Talmudology by Dr. Jeremy Brown, um, and he goes through it specifically on this staff a little bit. Where does this concept of seven and nine months from? And one of the things he talks about, which is very interesting, is that we actually find um, in uh, a few places, uh, Jewish and non-Jewish sources, this concept of seven and nine month babies. Um, and he quotes here, uh, Yerushalmi and Yavamos, uh, that talks about the word Vayitzer, he created, that's a, a Pasuk in Bereshi, chapter two, verse seven, where it's written written with two yuds and said the correct spelling should should be Vayitzer with one yud. And Rabbi Zeyer there in the Gemara explains that it teaches us that there's basically two types of creations, right? There's a creation for seven and a creation, um, uh, uh, there's a creation for nine. In other words, there's really two types of gestations, one at seven months and one at eight months. And both of them talk about that if a a seven-month baby is born in eight months, that baby would survive. But if his nine-month baby is born in eight months, that baby would not actually survive. And that's a Gemara in uh, in Yavamos. But what Dr. Brown actually points out, which is interesting, is that actually in Homer's Iliad, there's a reference to seven-month baby, and he actually cites a few other medical texts in a Rambam that talk about this distinction. Um, and it really wasn't until modern times that we sort of understood um, this, you know, really that it's only nine months. So I, I would look at the article. Again, the website is called Talmudology. Um, and I think what's interesting about it is, is that, um, you know, I think people who learn this in the Gemara are a little shocked by it and sort of use this as a proof to say, well, you know, all the science in the Gemara can't be true. But this article is really excellent because I think it makes the point to say this was actually a commonly held belief in many parts of the world. It was not a specific Talmudic Jewish belief. um, And therefore, we have to put it a little bit more in a context of uh, this was a scientific belief that many people understood and held by. Um, and it wasn't until the modern era that we understood that it actually uh, was not true. So I, I think I've spoken about the seven and nine month babies many times already. So I'm probably not going to revisit it again. Um, but, you know, always a very interesting topic. Uh, the last thing I just want to mention is, you know, this stuff also discusses a little bit again, the issue of becoming pregnant uh, while one is nursing and how that could be harmful to the baby. Um, and I, you know, I appreciate this. I'm a lactation consultant also is that, you know, yes, breastfeeding can be a type of uh, birth control, but the Gemara really understands here that this does not work as birth control at all. And so, uh, you know, here I feel like they actually get the science on very well. And they talk about, you know, that maybe you used a moch and to study to prevent pregnancy while you were actually uh, breastfeeding because it would be harmful because the baby then would not have food. Remember, this is before that there was formula or anything like that. Um, so, uh, you know, for me, what I found interesting about this staff overall is just the science pieces, the understanding of pregnancy, the understanding of lactation, some of which is, you know, we know today is not correct, but within a given context was a very well-held belief by many cultures and many many smart people uh, throughout history. Um, And the thing about lactation that they talk about here actually is true. We know that, you know, maybe it's good protection the first three to six months, but after that, uh, lactation is not uh, breastfeeding is not good contraception. Uh, so I don't know. Again, probably because of my doctor background, I always find the the medical pieces in the Gemara to be very interesting.
I, I think you're Dina, actually that the medical stuff is interesting to all of us, even if we don't have the medical background. And I thank you for your expertise on this and, and for bringing in that of Dr. Jeremy Brown, because, because it is, it's fascinating, you know, what, what they knew, what they didn't know, what we have to, you know, grapple with given what they didn't know and also what they did know. I, it, I find it all very, very interesting. Okay. I want to jump down to the end of the DAF and the, tricky part about what I want to do is really what, what I want to look at is at the very, very end of the daf. But to get there, I want to pay attention to the bit that is still connected to everything that you've discussed. And it's still connected to the Mishnah about these women, right? So here I'll read inside. So Rabbi Yochanan took back his statement. What was his statement? That the halacha was in accord with Rabbi Yossi. Now, the position of Rabbi Yossi is going to become clear in a moment. Um, but first we have honor of Yosef. If Rabbi Yochanan had wanted to take his opinion back, then he should have, he could take it back, you know, even from the time of the Brita that, that took down the opinions of the people in Yavna. And this is where I want to go, right? We're talking here, the Gemara gets into a whole kind of meta conversation about the who lines up with whom and then what do you do with that? When you have, for example... Um, you know, a large number of people of Chazal, you know, saying one thing and somebody else says something else. Let's see it inside. Detanya, Amar Rabbi Yishmael, Benoshel Rabbi Yochanan ben Broka. So Rabbi Yishmael, who is the son of Rabbi Yochanan ben Broka, said as follows, Shamati mipi chachamim bekerem biyavna. He says explicitly, I heard it from the mouths of the sages in Kerem biyavna, right? This is a place. Kulan shichot lamtin shol shechadashim. So, the the discussion over rabbinic authority and who gets cited for what comes back to this question of, you know, all three of these women, meaning the women that were talked about in the Brita, which you're, Dana, you mentioned, right, or touched upon in any case, right, all of them line up to the fact that they all have to wait three months. That was the majority opinion, or um, it doesn't tell us, right, if there was any dispute at that time in Yavna. But the point is that if the people in Yavna, those great sages in Yavna, had the same opinion as Rav Yossi, then that makes sense that the halacha would be in accord with the opinion of Rav Yossi because we're talking there about a majority rule and we're talking about the 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 greatness of the sages who thought this. So now, we again, we have a question about how whose halacha lines up with whom. Amr le Rabbi Yirmiel Rabbi Zrika so Rabbi Yirmiya says to Rabbi Zrika, when you came before Rabbi, when you come before Rabbi Abau, you know, do the following. So tell him about this contradiction, namely, uh, Where do we see that Rabbi Yochanan really said that the halacha was like Rabbi Yosi? Didn't we already know from Rabbi Yochanan that when we have what's called a Stam Mishnah, meaning an unattributed Mishnah, we've talked about this before, the part of a Mishnah that does not have any um, any name, right? If there's a view presented, it's not said in the name of so-and-so. So didn't Rabbi Yochanan say that when we have a Stam Mishnah that the Halacha is always according to that Stam Mishnah, to the unattributed view? Utanan kol hanashim and so in this case, in this Mishnah, all of that whole point about the women who cannot marry and, have, and they have to wait three months and that is applies to people who are virgins and people who are not virgins, all of that is an, um, an unauthored statement, 
right? It's not attributed to anybody. So then Rav Zerika goes and asks, right? Amar Lei, Rav Zerika is going to ask Rabbi Abau, so Rabbi Bao says to him, the one who, the people who raise this contradiction to you, you know, that's, um, it says, he's not worried about his flour, kemach, right, flour, meaning he's not worried about his bread and butter, meaning he doesn't need, he doesn't need to worry about the answer. When you have a mystery where the structure of it, and this is the meat and potatoes that I wanted to get into, right, that when you have a statement in the Mishnah that is unattributed, and then afterwards it is followed by a machloket, by a dispute, then the halacha doesn't follow the stam, the unattributed statement, as a matter of course. It might line up, but it, but it not as a as a default position. Why? Damar of Papa v'itim of Yochanan machloket v'acharkach stam halachik stam. And the reason that we don't follow the stam when the machloket comes afterwards is because there's a position that says exactly this in the name of Rav Papa, or maybe even in the name of Rav Yochanan, namely that if you've got a dispute and then afterwards you have an unattributed opinion, and meaning the unattributed opinion is presented as the final word, so to speak, then you follow the, that same stam, right? The unattributed opinion. But when the Mishnah presents the stam, an unattributed opinion, and then afterwards it gives you the machloket, then you don't go back to the opinion that doesn't have an authorship because you've got a machloket that comes immediately afterwards. And how can you say that that machloket is not going to be upheld against the voice of the stam, so to speak? Okay. So all of this is really, you know, it, it, it speaks to the rules of psak, the way halacha is determined across the board, general principles, not in this particular case of the, of the women and the divorce or the widow or the engaged or whatever, right? That's not the issue here. The issue is, what do you do when you have a machloket and a mishnah, and how do you know how to paskin? And the answer is, well, the first thing you do is you look to see where is that machloket placed in the Mishnah. If it is followed by a stam statement, an unattributed statement, then the then the dispute itself is kind of set aside for the sake of following that stam. So then the Gemara goes on, and it's going to lead on to the next page, but just a little bit, or or the part I'm going to read now is just going to take us a little bit. So what happens? We have a story here. It's kind of like a, a sidebar as compared to where we've we've just been talked about, just been talking, but it will come back. Um, so Rabbi Abal would walk, leaning upon a katfek, upon the shoulder of Rabbi Nachum Shamei, his 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 shamas, his his attendant, right? Like the idea that there was some younger younger student or younger rabbi who would be his support. And along the way, Mankit va'azil helchatamine. He so along the way, Rabbi Rav Nachman, I'm sorry, Rav Nachum, would walk and quote gather. Right, he'd he'd take the halachic rulings from him, meaning Rabbi Abau is the veteran here. Ba'omine machloket v'charkach mai. And one time, Rav Nachum asked Rabbi Abau, "What happens when the Mishnah has a dispute?" And so this is what I mean that it comes back to it, right? The Mishnah has a machloket, and then afterwards it has a an unattributed statement. What's the deal with that? What do we do? Amar le halachik 
And Rabbi Baal says that the halacha is in accord with the stam, with the unattributed opinion. Stam my. What about the the unattributed opinion comes first, and then there's a dispute. And there we say, we do not paskin like the unattributed opinion in that case. It's a repetition of what we've already seen where Rabbi Zerika went and asked Rabbi Abal. Rabbi Abal seems to be the one who is kind of the master of um, like the abstract halachic rulings. What do you do in the case of? Where where it's not about a case of, it's about, it's about um, the nature of the writing of the content as opposed to the details of the content it- itself so then Rav Nachum goes on Rav Nachum says now this is getting more complicated we've got a Mishnah that has no attribution and we've got a Breitah that has a Machloket in it now Mishnayot and Breitot are from the same era the Mishnayot are the ones that Rabbi Yehuda Nasi you know, collated or collected and, and codified into the Mishnah, but Breitot are, are from the same time period. So it's kind of, you can't just dismiss it out of hand because it's the same rabbis arguing on the same rabbis. Amarle, so Rav, Rabbi Abba answers to Rav Nachum, Halacha Kestam. He says, in that case also, you've got the Mishnah is the Stam, the Mishnah has the unattributed opinion, and the Breitot has a Machloket, we follow the Stam, we follow the unattributed opinion. One might suggest that we follow the Mishnah, right? Which means that we're following Rabbi Huda Nasi's decision to present this halacha without any machloket in the in the text of the Mishnah. Machloket mai, and now the now the, he flips the question, right? When you have a machloket that's in the Mishnah and the Breita presents just a stam unattributed opinion, then what? Amrle, and now I'm going on to the very top of of forty three of Mem Gimel. And so the he he answers, Rabbi Abba says, if Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, meaning the compiler, the codifier of the Mishnah, had not taught that in the Mishnah, right? I mean, if that Machloket had not appeared in the Mishnah to begin, to begin with, so then where would Rabbi Chia, who's the, the here, the, the Gemara presents Rabbi Chia as the person who redacted the Brightot, who, who kind of made, made order there, right? How would Rabbi Chia ever have even known about that particular position, any given particular position that's in the Mishnah? Rabbi Chia knows about it because of the Mishnah, and then he can find it or, or source it, you know, source its machloket, let's say, in the Brightah. Meaning, meaning the source of the Stam in the Brightah is inherent in the dispute that's presented in the Mishnah. And the fact that there's no attribution in the Brita just means that Rabbi Chia is taking a side, right? Not because it was really the accepted halacha and it's going to be universal in that way, but it's Rabbi Chia's comment, so to speak, on the machloket, on the dispute that Rabbi Huda Nasi presented in the Mishnah. So this goes on and, and hopefully we'll continue to talk about this stuff as we go. But I think that what's so interesting and so important here is, you know, we, we joke about machloket all the time, meaning not that it's a laughing matter, but we say, what's the answer? Oh, of course it's a machloket. And it's not exactly true because there's enough statements in the Mishnah where there's no machloket, where it is a stam, where there is just a, an objective, I don't know, objective, where there's a presented opinion as, as that's the opinion. And with no attribution, even that you have to go back and see, you know, does it line up? Who can we line? Who who can we who can we have to argue against it? 
the point being that that those positions that are in the Mishnah as smooth, right, without machloket, are were indeed, you know, very accepted. They're accepted on the authority of Rabbi Yudha Nasi present, presenting them in the Mishnah in this way, but they're also accepted on the fact that there the the any machloket that might have been around isn't included in that text. So again, that's that's the same decision making by Rabbi Yudha Nasi. But it's also machloket that could be left out, so to speak, in favor of choosing a, a bottom line. And I think that this becomes very, very important, again, especially since there is so much dispute within the Gemara, um, within the Mishnah for that matter, and even between the Mishnah and the Breita. The fact that we have rules of how to determine which wins um, is very necessary for a legal system and very helpful for us, I believe. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Revenue Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.